I want to encourage you tonight as we turn our attention to the the first chapter here of the book of Romans as we finish it up. Again, this message is is going to be, again, adult in content. And so I'm looking around to see if we have any young people in here. Uh, It's definitely going to be PG-13, so uh, I would encourage you uh, to, to carefully consider whether you want your young people in here tonight. You know, the Bible is like that. It speaks to the issues that we face. And tonight, God is going to wrap up his case against unbelieving mankind. And I want to again remind you that this whole first chapter, the focus of it is what ungodliness looks like in a person's life, even in a nation's life. What really defines someone who is an unbeliever? And because of that, people often take, and they carry this much further than I believe the Holy Spirit intended, as he wrote through the Apostle Paul, and they use this as a way for us to categorically say that someone who does one thing versus another thing is saved, and that is not, not what I intend to do tonight. But I do believe that it's indicative of where one's heart is. And if one continues in such things, then the Bible itself declares that one is not a child of God. And so hear me carefully. I'm not trying to determine who or who is not saved. But the Bible clearly defines the works of a righteous person and the works of an unrighteous person a person who is walking in the Spirit and is saved, and a person who is not walking in the Spirit and therefore ought to at least themselves take an examination introspectively of where they stand with the Lord. And I would pray that you would notice exactly how carefully I said what I just said. Because I believe that's the intent of the Holy Spirit. It's to get us thinking. It's for us to check and see if we are of the faith or not. It is for us to test our own salvation, to determine whether we're walking in the spirit or we're walking in the flesh. And so as God closes his case against sinful mankind, we have this very long list that comes in these last four verses. We're going to pick up in verse 28, and thankfully, we'll finish chapter 1 tonight. Because I will tell you, it's difficult to teach these passages. As much as it is at times to hear them, It is difficult to teach them because we never want anyone to believe that they've fallen outside of the scope, the power, and the majesty of the grace of God. And so that is not my intent. It's not the Spirit's intent. But the Spirit does speak to the church and challenges the church that we are to be bearers of light, not darkness. That we are to walk in the light and thereby not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so tonight, as we hear the word of the Lord, I want to encourage you to listen with an open heart, with an open mind, because many of you will be asked questions about where does God stand on this issue? What is it the Bible teaches about this? And as we have already looked at homosexuality, tonight we'll look at an additional area of our life here in America 
which I believe the Lord clearly speaks to in this passage. And we're going to examine what Scripture says about what we as believers ought to believe. And so would you pray with me as we turn our attention to God's word. Father, we thank you. I thank you for the power of your word, and I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us afresh and anew. That, Lord, those who might be tempted to even maybe get up and leave because something will be said that will pierce their heart and their mind. God, would they stay and hear the word of the Lord. God, would you speak powerfully and truthfully to your church. And would we be encouraged to not be playing games with you when people's lives eternally depend upon the truth. And so, God, we ask you now to speak to us and speak through us, Lord. As we examine your word, let it be life to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 28, Romans chapter 1. And notice now the result. God's closing his case on sinful mankind. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, would you please underline that? One of the signs, remember that he began this entire chapter by speaking to those who were in unbelief unbelievers, people who do not know the Lord. And so as he uses the phrase, even as they did not like, he's speaking about people who do not know God. And so if he's speaking about people who do not know God, then we can automatically assume that this is the way we should not as believers think. Amen? In other words, when he says directly that this is how unbelievers act, then that should be an automatic word to you and I as Christians. He's telling us how not to act. If he's saying, look, this is what an unbeliever does, he's also telling us what we are not to be and how we are not to act. And he says, first and foremost, as he closes his argument, they didn't even like to retain God in their knowledge. Isn't it insane? And I just shared with you, if we were to go and openly share the gospel on any public school campus, and I'm talking about preach the actual gospel on a public school campus right here, right now, today, in this country, virtually anywhere, you would be arrested. It's illegal. You cannot do it. How far our nation has fallen. When this country began, the number one source of teaching Americans English was the King James Bible. The McGuffey readers that became the standard for teaching people the English language on top of just learning to read were taken directly from the King James Bible. As one of its first acts to take care of America, in a sense, to pour into the soul of the fabric of this country, the United States Congress formed the American Bible Society and paid for the printing of Bibles to be distributed freely throughout the United States of America. And now we reach a time when they do not like to even retain God in their knowledge. Ask yourself the simple question. Is that the sign of something good or something bad? And because of that, 
God gave them over to a debased mind. Their mind became unfruitful in its thinking. To do those things which are not fitting. You see, when you take God out of the equation, then the mind goes to those things which are not fitting as someone who knows the Lord. That is exactly what we saw in the foundational truths that became what the Soviet socialist republics were. It was an atheist republic. God was removed from the public square. He was no longer spoken of. The Soviet Union imploded. It's not a good thing. Given over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. You see the result of not having God in the public square is that God then is kicked out of homes and businesses, lives in general, and he becomes a byword in a nation. Being filled with all unrighteousness. And again, I'm being very careful. You see the result of God saying, if you go this way versus this way, is this is what happens. And now he gives us a list that begins really with all unrighteousness, which is a general definition of that which is against God. If God is perfect and holy and just and righteous, then all unrighteousness is exactly the opposite. You are either for him or you are against him. So if it is unrighteousness, you can assume automatically that it is from the other side. In other words... You have Christ and you have Belial. You have light and you have darkness. You have fresh water and you have spoiled water. You have treasure and you have trash. And then he lists a long list. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers and backbiters. Just describe the political process. Haters of God. Violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, unforgiving. Who? He said it's they. He said it's the unrighteous. Who? Knowing the righteous judgment of God. Let me assemble this for you just briefly. You see, when you walk into a court of law and you are going to stand trial, as I said in the first study in this series, The first thing that happens to you is the charges are read. Knowing the righteous judgment of God. In other words, God is righteous. He will judge. He has to judge. He has no choice but to judge unrighteousness. He ceases to be holy. He is no longer just if he does not judge unrighteousness. If he allows any unrighteousness to slide, then he has never been righteous himself. 
So he must judge all unrighteousness. Praise God, it was judged on the cross of Christ. Amen? So we have received, we have believed, we now walk in the grace of God, and our unrighteousness has been dealt with at the cross of Christ. Amen? Hallelujah. But there is a choice. You can choose not the grace of God, and you can attempt to stand on your own merits before a perfectly holy and just God. Who? Knowing the righteous judgment of God. That those who practice such things deserve the death penalty. Are deserving of death. Not just physical death, but the wages of sin is death. Amen? So it's not just speaking of dying, which will happen, but it's going way beyond that to spiritual death, eternal separation from the God who created us and loves us. Knowing the righteous judgment of God. Here's the charges. Here's what God says about it. He's defined what it is. Your choice is to take the power of the cross, the victory of the cross, the grace of the cross, the blood of the cross, the cross of Christ, which cleanses from all unrighteousness. You can either take the cross... Or you can take what you yourself can fabricate. Might I say to you that no one will ever stand in the presence of a holy God on their own merit. By the works, Paul said, of the flesh, we'll get to it, no one is justified. And so the apostle closes now. And I want you to be very discerning here as you read these things. That those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same. Brothers and sisters. Beloved children of God. Would you please read very carefully what follows. But also approve of those who practice them. If that does not slap you between the eyes with a piece of truth that perhaps most Christians would choose to forget, then I pray that the Holy Spirit reveals to you right here and right now the depth of that statement. Because it does not say that one must do them in order for one to be in trouble with God. It says that one can simply approve of those who do such things to be in trouble with God. Again, may I remind you, I did not say necessarily are we talking about at this very moment, whether that means you're in or out of the kingdom of God, but it is very clear that in God's way of judging, and he judges as we'll get to in chapter 2 quite perfectly, He says he's not just concerned about people who sin actively. He's concerned about people who approve of those who sin actively. And that is the place that we as the body of Christ need to do some very hearty introspection as we face an election cycle for president in November. 
for congressmen, for senators. In our daily lives. Because this clearly states, we are not to approve of people who do what is clearly against the will of God. So you might want to think about how you vote. God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's cure is found at the cross. It's free. And let me make sure that as we begin to unwrap this passage. You see, God brings to our attention the extent of the sinfulness of the heart of mankind. And look, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Every last one of us. We have all turned unto our own way. And so this is not about better or best. This is always going to be about the grace of God that is poured out in our lives. And without it, no man sees Christ. No man will see God. So we cry out for the grace of God. But as the apostle says to us that in this case, that people are given over to a depraved or a debased mind, he uses akotimos, and it's a Greek word that when you look at it, it, it means to be worthless or useless. It means to have zero value. In other words, your thinking becomes so debased that you no longer can think correctly. And in fact, what you do think has zero value. Have you ever noticed the arguments of people who try to defend sin, that their arguments are often circular reasoning that have zero value? It's because their minds are focused in on the very things that God says will destroy A mind itself that finds God worthless eventually becomes worthless itself. And you can see that throughout history. How many great leaders slid into the pit of despair and sin only to lose, literally, their minds. To become so useless and so worthless that they themselves could no longer think correctly. The great prophet Job, the oldest, I believe, of man's writings. His life, probably 3,500 years or so before Christ came to the earth. In Job 21, it says this, Job speaking about the depraved mind of man, said, Depart from us, for we do not even desire the knowledge of you in our ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? Or what would we give him if we were to entreat him? You see, the same problem has existed throughout mankind's history on this earth. Even God's chosen people, Jeremiah said, My people are foolish, for they know me not. They didn't know God. They had all kinds of religion. But their minds became so twisted that what was evil became good, and what was good became evil. And they're by bringing on themselves the judgment of God. And so Paul gives us a catalog of sins. And I want to remind you that these are not exhaustive. Though this is an exhaustive list of 22 different things. But it's not an exhaustive list of all the things that man could do that would be displeasurable to God. But they are a representative list. And it does cut to the quick, the heart. It gets to the issue It gets to what we need to be in this world if we're going to be on the right side. 
You see, frankly, the church is to blame for many of the social ills that we have in our country today. Because the church has ceased being a representative of righteousness. And the church has become a representative of the very things that Paul decries here in this list. And I want you to notice some of those things. Uh, Backbiters. Gossips. Double-minded. You see, we're supposed to imitate Christ. We're supposed to look like Jesus. And when we don't, the world gets the wrong impression of our Savior. We have responsibility here. And so Paul gives us this list, which is almost endless if you really think about it. You could go down through here. And I would note for you that when Scripture uses the term immorality or impurity or fornication, adultery or homosexuality, almost without exception. The Greek word that's used there is porneia. And the reason that's important is the noun defines who's engaged in it, but the sin is basically the same sin. So someone who's engaged in adultery, that's a married person who is in sexual sin. If it's two men, that would be homosexuality. And the Bible in English would say it that way. But the word that's used in the original language reminds us that all sexual sin, in other words, all sex outside of marriage, is sin. 100% of it. And that means every couple that says, well, we really love each other. That's every person who's angry with their spouse because of the lack of attention, physical intimacy. And so they decide to go outside of the marriage and they think that they have the right. That's sin. That, of course, is homosexuality. And the word that's used here is the word from which we derive our English word, pornography. Because that also is sexual sin. And so buried in this, defining the desecration of humanity, is a society that turns towards the acceptance of all sexual sin. How does this apply to us? Because he has said, it's not just those who do them, it's those who approve of them. It's the Christian who won't stand and face someone and say, brother, sister, that relationship that you have with that man, with that woman, is not of God. And I don't care if you both claim to know the Lord Jesus and you make all the excuses in the world. If you are being sexually intimate and you are not married, that is sin. It's sin. It's not love. It's sin. And see, when the church won't stand and the church knows that the penalty of sin is grave, 
then what do you expect the world who doesn't know the Lord to do? But to do even worse. You see, it does fall on us. We gorge ourselves on promiscuity in the media almost every day. It's become absolutely insane. As I shared with you, I love the Olympics. But no one can tell me that the male track athletes who wear legs down to here, why the lady track athletes have to wear a bikini bottom. Can somebody explain that to me? Because I'm pretty sure you can't. It's for one reason and one reason only. Why the men have shirts that go all the way to the tops of their pants and yet the ladies have bare midriffs. Can someone explain that one to me? It's because our culture has become so saturated with sexual immorality that it becomes expected. And it's time the church woke up and put up instead of shut up. I'm going to speak to a very touchy issue. And before I do, there's a species of African army ants, the Doralysis, and that group of ants happens to be a subterranean ant, and they have a single queen. A single colony can be upwards of a million ants. And there's an interesting thing that happens if the queen is inside of the nest, and the queen should die for any reason, the, the entire colony will die. It may take several weeks to a month, but they will lose their way and they will eventually die because it is her pheromones that allow them to track out, eat, and come back to the nest. And I would say to you that God intended for us to track by the Holy Spirit from Jesus outward in our adventures. But if we allow the king to die, if Christ is no longer magnified, if we're not focused on Jesus, then I think the church begins to scurry around like army ants without a king. How does this touch us? We're in the midst of a very contentious presidential election cycle. Frankly, I wish there were option D, none of the above. (laughs) And so I do not intend to be political in any way, shape, or form, but I believe this bears on what we are facing because there is an issue that has been facing our country since 1972, and that is the issue of abortion. And if you look at the issue of of abortion and you read that list that we just went over of the 22 things... Eleven of them are violated in the process of abortion. Now remember what it says. Not just those who do such things, but those who approve of those who do such things. And the reason I say this is because I am sick to death 
of pro-abortion Christians, so to speak. I not only have spoken with them and to them, but I have had them speak very nearly violently to me. And they use the same rhetoric, the same insanity that comes out of the White House and out of the State House and frankly out of the trash can. It's not the Lord. And I want to speak to this issue tonight. Verse 32, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Lock that in. Because it's an important component of what the Apostle Paul wrote by the Holy Spirit as the Word of God for us as the believers. 11 of those 22, sexual immorality, wickedness, maliciousness, murder, evil-mindedness, violence, boasters, inventors of evil things, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Now, that's just half the list. You could probably make a case for a few more. God's grace is available to all who repent, and I'm here to shame no one. If you're here tonight and you've ever had an abortion, if you're here tonight and you're contemplating one, if you are a man and you've been party to one because you are 50% to blame, and let's not let that slide, God's grace awaits right here, right now. You can be forgiven and cleansed. I want to make that very clear. But abortion is not okay with God. And it should not be okay with Christians. And I want to speak to this issue concisely and yet quickly. I'll give you two premises. And here's how we can define this. You see, because people get hung up on the wrong things. I'm not even going to deal with the fact that it's very clear just from a moral understanding. But let's just pick two things. Number one, and it's the argument that is most often used that that zygote, that combination of the mother's DNA and the father's DNA, that at the moment of conception bonds into a new genetic set of chromosomes and now becomes very specific DNA that is not the mom and is not the dad but is unique. So let's leave the biology intact as we speak of this issue. You see, but people say that's not a life. Do whatever you want with it. It's not a life. The other issue is the issue of murder. You see, your Bible doesn't tell you it's wrong to kill. Your Bible says it's wrong to murder. That means to take life unlawfully. To kill is to take life lawfully. That is not condemned in the Bible. Matter of fact, Romans 13, we get there, specifically says that the government doesn't bear the sword in vain, for they are, in fact, the executors of judgment upon evil for your good. So let's wind through this. Premise number one, that it's wrong to murder. The Bible is so clear on this, it doesn't even bear our time. It's part of the original Ten Commandments, amen? God's moral law has not changed. 
It's always been wrong to murder people. It's never been right to murder anyone. And if you take a life for an unjust or an unlawful reason, if that person has committed no crime, then you have murdered them. It's very simple. The second premise. That that's a person. And that's the one that people struggle with. Let's walk through your Bible and see if the Bible clearly states that unborn children are people. Psalm 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. For behold, Luke 44 says of Mary, writing of Jesus, Behold, when I was with the sound of your greeting, it reached my ears, and my baby leapt for joy in my womb. From God's perspective, attributes of humankind are given while the child is still in the womb. Not outside the womb, in the womb. A second thing, when you talk about children who are yet born, the Bible clearly defines with personal pronouns those that are yet unborn. Jeremiah 1.5, for I formed you in the womb and I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated. You can't consecrate someone who's not a person. Amen? I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Speaking of Jeremiah, while Jeremiah was still in his mother's womb, God knew him and appointed him a prophet. I would say that's a pretty strong argument for the personhood and personal pronouns are used to describe him. Matthew one twenty and 21. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a child when he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and still inside of Mary's womb. Jesus was also a baby at conception. Matthew one twenty again reminds us of that fact. You see, when you begin to look through these things, you find that the personhood of the unborn is clearly defined. The unborn are also called literally children. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting there in Luke one forty one, the baby leapt in her womb. Not the zygote, not the blob of tissue, the baby. baby as believers we take God's word his authority we don't get our authority from man just because something is legal does not mean it's okay with God babies are also protected in scripture with the same argument The same punishment is applicable to the destruction of a life still in the womb as one that's outside of the womb. Very strong arguments. It's contained in Exodus 21, verse 22 and 23. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman who is with child so that she gives birth prematurely and yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him and he shall pay as the judges decide. And if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint 
that as a penalty life for life. That's a baby inside the womb by your Bible is described as a person with, guess what, civil rights. So Mrs. Clinton, who said today that a child inside of, she used the word child, by the way, in the womb of a mother does not have human rights. Those are her exact words. I take exception to that. Because my Bible says differently. I told you I was going to make some people mad. It's not my intent. But we need to speak the truth. When we come to these difficult subjects, we must speak the truth. One day I'm going to stand before a holy God and he's going to say to me, Jeff, when you reached Roman chapter 1, why did you veer to the right or to the left from what I clearly spoke in my word? I do not want to have to answer that question. I don't want to stand before a holy God and say, God, I'm sorry. A sixth thing. Called by God before birth. Jeremiah, again, chapter 1. Psalm 139. So very clear. A passage that most of us know. For my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, and your eyes have seen me I my unformed substance. For in your book they are all written, the days that were ordained for me, as yet there were none of them. That is the personhood of the child before it ever takes its first breath outside of the womb. Why am I saying this? Because there are people, Christians, who will look you right in the eye and say, well, if it's rape or it's incest or it's this, or it's that, or if there's drastic financial hardship, or if there's just, we, we just need to make provision. We do not need to make provision for the destruction of innocent life. We can't. I believe judgment has already come upon our nation because of this. And I fear where it will go if we do not speak the truth. You see, I think we can clearly define from Scripture that the unborn are persons. They're not a mass of tissue. And furthermore, they do not belong to the mother. It is not a woman's right to choose. That is God's child. It's God's child. And we must say what it is. If we continue to echo the talking points of a political party for the gain of the political party, then we are standing in direct opposition to the inspired word of God, which is true. And as Christians, it is our source of information for life and godliness. Is it murder? Of course it is. Of course it is. Because you must take action to terminate the life. 
fully 98% of the time, if you leave the zygote, which is the initial recombination of the DNAs, half from the mother, half from the father, the moment of inception, by the way, you can look this up on the American Medical Association's website and find out that they say that at the moment of conception, it is a unique life. If you act on that in any way, shape, or form to alter its course or destiny, then you have killed it. So from day one to birth, or any time thereafter, you have acted on another human life with its own unique DNA, with its own characteristics, that if left alone, generally speaking, yes, of course, there are premature births, yes, there are babies who are miscarried, All of those things are true. That's not the point. The point is, if we act, and let me just be blunt, the reason that we act is selfishness. That's the reason. We don't want to go through the financial hardship. We don't want to have to explain away why we're not in a relationship with someone that we would want to have children with. We, we don't want the various problems that will come into our lives for the perceived difficulties that a child would bring. That's pure selfishness. That's not thinking about the innocent life. That's thinking only about our own life. And that's the opposite of what Christ did. He came into this world that the world through him would be saved. Frankly, I'm reminded exactly of the situation of the Jewish people in Nazi Germany. But often said that abortion is America's Holocaust, and I have to agree. Because the only crime of the Jewish people was being Jewish. And the only crime of an innocent baby is being a baby who happens to reside inside of someone else's body for a temporary period of time. Scripture is clear. So the question becomes, family of God, what position do we take? Because remember what the Apostle Paul said, not just those who do such things, but those who approve of those who do such things. It causes us to check our viewpoint on every area. And say, can I, as a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, grace-receiving Christian, have some other opinion on this issue? I do not believe we can. Now, you may hate me for saying that. There may be some of you in here who are going, I'm going to write him an email as soon as I get home. I'll gladly, I will gladly respond. But if we won't protect the innocent, if we won't, the very people whom ourselves, our lives have been rescued from the pit of hell by the grace of God, if we won't stand, who will? You see, I believe that because the source of this problem is a pack of lies 
And it is. It, it, it's just completely a pack of lies. Fetus is not really life. That's ridiculous. That is a medical absurdity. There's no doctor in here that would tell you that's true. That's unique DNA as an individual. Now they can justify it all they want, talk about when it has value, but we already read the verses from a Christian perspective when it has value. Conceived. God knew them before they were born. It's not human by nature. How can life and life come together and produce anything but life? Again, it's clear. It is life. How can someone have property other over another? How can we, we have spent the last nearly 200 years trying to remind ourselves that no one should have authority over anyone else's life. It's not okay to own someone, to make them your property. I think we've made that pretty clear. Was the whole issue of slavery, was it not? Was that not the issue? And so it's okay just because that child happens to reside inside of someone else, now it's your property? That's not even intellectually honest, much less biblically honest. It's not the property of mother. It's not the woman's right to choose. God's child to be protected at all costs. Some will say that that life's parasitical can't exist without the mother. That also is completely true on one side and untrue on the other. Because if you truly believe that as a human you have a right to defend the defenseless, there's no more defenseless person than an unborn child. It's the reason that we jump out in front of cars to save children from going out in the street, isn't it? So altruism stops at the womb? I don't think so. You see, we could go on, and we won't. To me, it's very clear. And this is one example of God making it clear to us. We need to stand for righteousness in these last days. You see, we can't convince people of their need of the love of God if we're not going to tell them the truth about God. He's holy. He's just. Yes, he's willingly desirous to give grace to all who will ask. But he hates sin. And I believe he especially hates it when that sin is perpetrated on people who cannot defend themselves. So we need to be careful, family. Because that admonition also applies to drunkenness and drugs and thievery and foul language. 
He began with all manner of evil, didn't he? And he concludes with, not just those who do such things, but approve of those who do such things. Condensed by the Old Testament prophets to a very simple statement, be ye holy, for I am holy. Praise God that we can have that holiness imparted to us by grace and through faith. And God will do that sanctifying work of working in us to accomplish his will and pleasure. But we must stand for righteousness in this last. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this church. And Lord, this has been difficult. And I want to pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit if there's anyone here, Lord, anyone tonight, but their life has been affected by the terror of abortion. And Lord, they're hurting tonight. We have yet a while to go in this service and some other things that we're going to entertain. Lord, would you please right now cradle them in your everlasting arms? And God, as we make available the prayer team after service, Lord, would they not leave this place with their heart wounded, Lord, but repentant and forgiven? And so, Father, I pray that you would work now by your Spirit to make us strong, cause us to stand, cause us to vote with conscience, Lord, for truth and righteousness and justice and these things which are so uniquely you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.